welcome to Got the Runs, the podcast with all the sexual chemistry of a chef at a restaurant and a girl who works at the restaurant, in my humble opinion. Ooh. But we'll get into that. <laughs> it's a little teaser for you. Uh, this is Got the Runs. How are you today, David? I'm good. <laughs> Our famous introduction segment. <laughs> uh, yeah, fine. I. <laughs> this is a tangent that might take us like right into a discussion of the book from uh, an oblique angle. But I was thinking about this shortly, uh, or I guess it was yesterday, um, because I was watching my next guest requires no introduction the david letterman netflix <laughs> talk show great slate of guests this this season yeah anyways i was watching the ryan reynolds episode and he was like showing the picture of ryan with his brothers and i was like crazy that those are the brothers of a famously handsome man ryan reynolds <laughs> anyways and then they started talking about blake lively and i was like oh yeah blake Lively's going to direct the uh, movie of this apparently <laughs> So I was thinking about that a lot. I forgot that that was a thing that was like just announced like last month and that Edgar Wright is writing it and yeah. producing. I So I defer to you in this regard because you are the keener student of the film industry. And maybe I've just been burned by too many like comic book adaptation announcements, but this seems like the kind of thing where it's like there's no way this ever comes out right <laughs> like or even like really gets made so the thing that i was going to say is just that like i i mean but then but you know how sometimes you watch a movie and it's like a just like a, a drama with like a sort of weird atmosphere to it right and then you get to the end of it and it's like based on the novel by XYZ. And you're like, oh, that's why it was weird. It was based <laughs> on a book. I feel like you can make a movie out of this, like a pretty, like, not austere, but like a pretty, like, serious drama. It would be almost like a thriller, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, because, like it's almost like a psychological so, yeah, horror. Yeah, kind of. like she's so, she, especially like as it, you know her she she sort of like spirals as as she makes bigger and bigger changes and i think that the angle to come at it yeah would be would be maybe not like full-on horror but yeah like psychological thriller in terms of like how she like keeps deciding to do bigger and bigger things even though she obviously knows that like every time she does a bigger thing it gets like even worse Right. And like, I mean, obviously that would be like not particularly in keeping with this. But then it's like, oh, like Blake Lively, she was in A Simple Favor. She was in The Rhythm Section, <laughs> which I think is a thriller. I think it's like an action movie. Yeah. But like, I think that like she maybe has a better handle on the tone than another director might like mm -hmm. it's i feel like it's hard to make a movie of this that's not just like this is demented or like you know like like, like a classic movie where you're just like i can't watch this movie because the main character is an insane person <laughs> yeah and that I, like I, comes across more readily in a book or a, a graphic novel in this case yeah i think the tone is tricky because so much of the comedy in this is like metatextual kind of or like it's it's injected by like the narrator or the caption boxes in a way that like scott pilgrim has like jokes in it this book doesn't really have like jokes in it in terms of like 
you know, like humorous dialogue exchanges. It has jokes in it where like the narrator like comments snidely about something or there's like a label on something that is, uh, is, you know. Right. But then I'm like, oh, if you look at, so if you look at like a 500 days of summer or an eternal sunshine like, I think that is sort of, like, the bent that it's going towards. Is like, 500 it can sort Days of, of Summer funny? Sure. Right? Uh, it has, I haven't like, seen a it big... in a while. I, I feel like it's kind of, like... It has jokes, for sure. It's, like, wry. <laughs> sure. I mean, no. It, I mean, it has, like, an, a dance sequence with, like, cartoon animals. Yeah, like... but even that, I'm like, this isn't... Like, I don't see that and go, like... <laughs> Uh, no, but like, but you're like, this is funny. I'm, or yeah, at least I guess. people were, people were like, <laughs> this is funny at the time. I haven't, I haven't seen that movie in quite a while now, but I don't particularly think of it as like funny per se, I guess. It is certainly at the very least like a dramedy. Right. I mean, it's like, it's borderline like a Little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, but that is a movie that I'm like, well, that is funny. <laughs> like that movie yeah. consistently does have jokes. That's what I'm saying. Right. It's like I think it's in that it's in that wheelhouse at least. A Dan in real life is... type. <laughs> sure. A movie I mean... that I assume has jokes. <laughs> See to all those pancakes. Oh right, that's that <laughs> that poster. Anyways, I, <laughs> I often confuse that movie with Jeff who lives at home, uh, just because of you know the naming convention yeah. and the sort of general vibe that it's projecting. Who, who is Jeff? I believe Jeff, who lives at home. Oh, I couldn't say. Is that a? Is it a Duplass? Or yeah, okay, I was right. Oh, it, it does. Is, it's Jason Siegel. Oh, it is Jason Siegel. I was gonna. Say, it's dude, written a... and directed by the Duplass brothers, okay. starring Nate, Jason Siegel and thinking. Ed Helms. Because I was like, there is a Duplass something that has a similar thing. Another movie to completely continue <laughs> us on the <laughs> derailing. Of I mean, we're, we're already talking I, about it. That I frequently feel like I mix up in in with those is uh, Brad's status, the Ben Stiller what? like coming of age dramedy. He's he's like a dad who is taking his son to like tour college campuses and like dealing with like empty nester syndrome. But also there's like a social media component somehow. He like is comparing his life with his friends on social media. So it's like Brad's facebook status is the... i have literally never heard of this movie it's um it came out many years after both dan in real life and <laughs> yes. Jeff Lives i think of it as a recent film because i saw the trailer and was like how can this be <laughs> <laughs> yes it's from 2017 um yeah i mean what a cast on brad's status ben stiller michael sheen and Jenna ben Fisher. stiller also directing i feel like Ben Stiller. No, of course, it's written and directed by Survivor runner-up, I believe, Mike White. Of course. (laughs) I I now officially disengage with this conversation. We're, of course, discussing the works of Brian Lee O'Malley and... the this the how this how would you categorize this because it's not exactly like a sophomore effort but it's like the book after the the, like capital t capital b the book yeah it's the follow-up to the big thing which is like and i think there is a certain amount of like that energy behind it like oh scott scott pilgrim is like a looming specter over this book i feel 
and is present in the book at one point. He Did is. you do you know about this? How there's a cameo? I, I spotted him and Ramona dining. I also saw Stephen Stills and Julie eating dinner together in her fantasy world. But then in real life, he was of course there with Joseph. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, it's I think certainly like it being a follow up effort to a very big and popular and like I think the thing about it is that it's not only a thing a following up on a thing that's big and popular but i think you i feel like you see this a lot of times in like music is it's the follow-up on the thing that's big and popular and not that much like the what the maybe and it's hard to say with brian lee malley because he only had one book before scott pilgrim but like this feels more in his wheelhouse than scott pilgrim does if that makes sense yeah let's uh why don't we do the the uh one minute plot synopsis and then we can dive into sure. some of this stuff okay do you want to do it or shall i <laughs> uh i'll do it start the clock good afternoon <laughs> thank you good evening good, good evening so seconds is the story of katie who is a chef she started the restaurant seconds uh, and is now looking forward to starting a new restaurant called katie's that she's having trouble getting off the ground due to various logistical issues as she's working to get this new restaurant off the ground she's still kind of working at seconds but um but feeling unfulfilled there she's ready to move on when one of the staff at seconds has a terrible burn accident uh she is shown by the house spirit of the restaurant how she can eat mushrooms and use them to undo mistakes as long as they took place on the seconds premises she uses it to fix uh her friend hazel's arms um and learns more from Hazel about the house spirits, but quickly becomes addicted to her power to uh, redo mistakes and things she regrets. And as we kind of alluded to, starts making bigger and bigger changes uh, while that simultaneously undermines the fabric of reality um, and brings a, an evil other spirit into the restaurant as well. Um, at the end of the day, she is able to uh, set things aright by going back to the very beginning, uh, including uh, like the the night when Hazel burnt her arms and undoing all of the changes. So she's back in her own life uh, with many lessons learned and prepared to move ahead uh, with a better kind of sense of self and uh, appreciation for uh, the, the little things that life has to offer. Now, seconds, bad name for a restaurant? Well, I was thinking about this because it's like, there, it's like you're getting a second chance. Great well, name, great name for a book. Bad name for a restaurant. And also time. But it's because you want seconds. Yeah, but like, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't It doesn't do much for me, especially as kind of like the fancy place in town, it seems. Right. Certainly, yeah, if not fancy, then certainly like a more earnest commitment to food than other places. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's so much to dig into the like whole inherent premise of this book well, is so like kind of insane. It is kind of insane, but it also like leaving aside the magic mushrooms part is this is why I think like the And also wait, just hold on. I just like have an important thing that we sort of need to clear out of the way uh -huh. before we move forward. Like when she eats the freaking magic mushrooms, it's almost like she's kind of tripping balls. It is almost kind of like that. Um <laughs> <laughs> Especially when she stares into the cauldron and sees the eternity of time and space and like Yggdrasil the life tree. <laughs> uh, sure. Especially there. But uh, anyways, the premise to me feels so rooted in his own life because 
you have it's the story so, of a creator on the cusp of 29 whose original project has become a huge smash hit but they are incredibly bored of it is in good hands with other people running the show and they are so desperate to start the next new thing but it's going terribly and every time they like try to go back to the old thing they get annoyed or mess something up or feel like they are just now interfering with something that other people are doing just fine with and so to know that he was like working on this as Scott Pilgrim was winding down and like the movie was being made I'm like boy this uh <laughs> it, it feels like a real window into kind of like how done he was with Scott Pilgrim to me in many ways yeah I mean well it's hard because you like you never get the sense I mean like a big part of the book is that like Katie's not really done with seconds it's just that like she feels like everything, like it's sort of like moving past her. And then she, and then so like she's still like present there, but then it's like, what am I doing here exactly? Mm-hmm. But then also she like has this sense of ownership over it, but then also she doesn't like own the rights to it essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And well, and it's like, it's, I mean, this is maybe stretching the the metaphor a little too far, but it's also a situation where it's like, no one's saying like, you have to leave. Everyone would be very happy if you stayed, but she obviously does not feel that staying is what is going to be fulfilling for her. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly like it's another, it's, I mean, it's weird to call them like coming of age books, but it is like, if you look at like Lost at Sea, Scott Pilgrim, and then this, like, it's like three snapshots of like, pretty much like someone's formative years, more or less, like, I mean, maybe our perspective will change once we're like 40 years old, but like, of like, your adolescence, your like transition into adulthood, and then it's like, finding out what you want to do with your life, basically. And like, he is so clearly like experiencing these three stages and like each of the books is about the experience of those stages and like how you like grow as a person throughout those stages that like it as a collection they make for like very interesting reading and Mm. like you said a very interesting like insight into his sort of like emotional state at the time he was probably making this yeah i did read an interview with him where he was kind of describing how he sort of like came to the book and it was sort of like exactly what you're saying where he was like it's it's like weird in your late 20s to look around and be like I've come of age and like now what do I do <laughs> where yeah. where like obviously Katie's story is not really like a coming of age story per se like she has come of age and uh, you know is like a self-actualized person and you know has all of these um goals that she has for herself and like lots of goals that she's already accomplished and like a direction in her life and all of that. Like she knows who she is and it's less so about being like, and she's going to like discover who she is through food or, or, or anything like that. Like it might be with a younger character and much more so centered around like, how do you, I I guess it's, it's about kind of like, how do you stay invested once you have like kind of made it? And like, how do you, how do you like keep things fresh? Yeah. And I also think to some degree, it's in the same way that Scott Pilgrim is to some extent, like it's about like emotional regression in a way or like the ways that where like once if you're doing something new and the new thing is hard, then it can be like extremely tempting to like sort of go back to 
where you were before or to like cling to the past in some ways. And then obviously, like, I think the idea of being like 30 years old is sort of like that sort of period of reflection wherein you're sort of looking back on where, but it's strange because I feel like we never, and maybe it's just the relationship thing, but do we, do you ever feel that strongly that it's like she has a life that needs fixing or maybe, and maybe that's sort of the irony of it that like her life is like already good and she decides that she needs to like make these fixes to make it perfect. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that her like journey is, is basically kind of realizing how good she's already got it. Um, and like, I think he's kind of manifesting something that he himself feels as far as like wanting to wanting to like kind of tinker and being a bit of a perfectionist and like instead of moving forward with something that's good once she gets the ability to kind of look back and be like well what would I change if I could the answer is like kind of like everything (laughs) in in a way um and so her like yeah it, it is about kind of like controlling that or, or overcoming that temptation to focus on the past and like, what could I have done differently that would make my life be more the way that I would like it to be? And instead, like, yeah, looking looking ahead to the future and making it less about like, how would I change things? And more so like, what can I do so that, you know, it it is the future that I want to see myself in. And we kind of see that, like as she goes through making all of her different changes it doesn't like it doesn't make her life better or happier per se like she she gets like max back her uh her ex and the result is that like her control over the restaurant is like substantially diminished yeah that's i think that it's interesting to me that that sort of becomes the central like plot mechanism or the central conflict in the book is that like she has is like this relationship she has with max that like is now recreated and she's sort of like working through that just be partly because just like it's such a crazy concept (laughs) that like and and like becomes not like not problematic in like a political sense but like i feel like it's just it's so weird and i think that that is part of why i think like it's a tough movie to adapt that like it feels weird and like almost like i don't know invasive (laughs) uh like against max in some ways that like i think like that being so tied to the central conceit also makes it a little difficult to like reckon with the narrative to some extent yeah, it's uh, like I I do feel that if you were adapting it the focus really just shifts more so onto like like I'm sure that is still an element because I think that's a good kind of like reveal to be like the restaurant is happening. Here it is, MK2, <laughs> which also a terrible name for a restaurant. Sure. I think that yeah, thematically like it's it's tackling a lot of big ideas and isn't necessarily always like the tightest focus per se, but I do think that in the same way that Lost in Sea was or Lost at Sea was him processing a lot of kind of like his emotions from a season of his life that he was sort of like 
only only like just far enough removed from that he could like make a comic about it this is kind of the same thing in a lot of ways like he's just far enough removed from like the scott pilgrim experience and that like whole process of kind of like making it and enjoying that professional success while still i'm sure like you know feeling a lot of the things that katie is feeling that he's in a position to make this book that yeah i I think has a lot of his inner life in it yeah there there is that weird self-reflexiveness to it because like you would think that it would be like this is the book that's about me making the book after scott pilgrim but instead it just is the book after scott pilgrim and because like it's like it's weird to be like making a book that's about trying to follow up your book Mm -hmm. and so like i do maybe wonder if he had like other ideas that he started an abandoned or anything like that. I don't know anything about that. Um, I mean, not to psychoanalyze too heavily, but this does like come out in 2014 and he gets divorced in 2014. I was just double checking the date <laughs> of that because I was thinking the exact same thing. Like, I do think it's telling that, um, you know, his wife, Hope Larson, who is in some ways the inspiration for Ramona, like they had they had gotten together just shortly before he started working on Scott Pilgrim and Scott Pilgrim is so much about like really a a relationship in in a lot of ways mm. oh yeah and then you get to seconds which comes out in the same year that he divorces his like quote unquote Ramona not to be reductive but you know mm. his his like the the person on whom Ramona is kind of like most based or most inspired right and the work that he is producing during that time is about how this artist this creator needs some distance from an important relationship in her life because she is focused on you know kind of developing for herself and and being her own person and how that kind of like causes the relationship to dissolve and she's like not necessarily totally sad about it but then that's what makes it so weird that the conclusion of the comic is like, and then they got back together. Is like as at least that's the implication I take from it. Maybe yeah, you have a different it is. Interpretation it is the, kind of the implication, but and I, which I think like, and I was like, that's a weird choice, and ma- that makes a little more sense almost. Being when you're sort of like, it's so it's so weird because it is so like meta and reflexive that it's like, oh, it's a book about like going back and doing things differently mm-hmm. and you made the end of the book that like she gets back together with like the person that she was in a relationship with mm-hmm. but then you got a divorce it's like so well i mean they they again not i to, mean maybe but... it's not that you know internal but when his work is so feels so autobiographical and is so like if not reflective of the events of his life reflective of like the emotional events of his life in a lot of ways, then it becomes hard not to be like, well, I mean, this must have been an influence. Yeah. I I mean, again, like not to, not to put too much psychoanalysis into it, but they were still together when he like was working on it. Like it, it wasn't until later that they actually broke up. And also, but that's like, what makes it crazy <laughs> to me because, like, if if the, if it came out like years later, I'd be like, oh, well, like this is about his divorce. But then it's not. Well, yeah, but it's also way. kind of like the the. It's not. It's not like I guess a. Hmm. I, I mean, I, like I think you could have it end with them not together, and it would like 
makes sense in a lot of ways, but it doesn't necessarily surprise me that he being like kind of a romantic and knowing that he was like, like, I feel like if I was his wife and he (laughs) made this comic (laughs) and at the end they like didn't get back together, I would be like, uh, (laughs) I would kind of be like, uh, anyways, (laughs) I'd be like, who's Hazel? You seem really into her. (laughs) I mean, again, like we don't have to talk too much more about it, but like, it's just that element of it. And I think that that is like, I, I like a lot of it, but then that's the part that I find so disconcerting because it is kind of like a horrific concept that like you like wake up and like, even though you you're, you sort of like consciously made these corrections, but the idea that you wake up and you're suddenly like in a marriage with the wrong person basically <laughs> is like a kind of like horrific concept that like is really like a lot of what the book explores in a weird way. Yeah, well that's why my impulse with it is like I feel like you just need to lean into the like thriller and like like pseudo horrifying kind of aspects of it because yeah, I mean it it really is about like I read an interview with him where he said that Like, one of his goals was to make adult stress cute. Um, And the, like, adult stress of the book is, like, definitely a big part of it. And I think that it often manifests itself in... I mean, she, she is just stressed a lot of the time, but it comes up in situations that are, like horrifying (laughs) like they're stressful because they are like scary and confusing and uh unpredictable yeah i think that he maybe in terms of making it cute that it's maybe more successful when it's like sort of more of her internal monologue and it's more about like her internal feelings that he's more successful like making that cute because you know the narration sort of takes this role of like the voice in her head. Like she'll like fight back with the narration and like have conversations with the narration. I I think so that like the, like the cute element of it that he's referring to is like aesthetically and like how, like I would say the art in terms of like the people is kind of the chibiest we've seen him get. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to invoke chibi as well. Yeah. They just, they just are, especially like Mm -hmm. katie because she is just like a small person and so she she just like looks very small all the time she has like super saiyan hair (laughs) she has absolutely huge enormous eyes and like chubby cheeks and like she is she is very much designed to be cute i read a review where someone was like I, when I opened the book for the first like several pages, I thought she was like a ten year old girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not unreasonable. Um, so I think like he's he's thinking in terms of aesthetic, and it is yeah. like really, it's very different from Scott Pilgrim artistically for sure. Yeah, it feels to me like he's leaning a little more into like the cuteness and also sort of like the maybe like the magical realism of it, it almost like in the aesthetic as well and I, I like the way it sort of bounces between like when you have the dream sequences those are like so like stark and horrifying and have like complex line work and stuff like that and then you have the more like chibiistic uh elements of it and i another thing i f- i see a lot is like there's this cut sort of like do you know tilt shift 
No. It's basically like this like style of photography right, where it's where you like, go like eh. <laughs> Yeah. And it's like, whoa, it's sideways <laughs> now. Uh but it's it's sort of where like you it's some sort of forced perspective thing where it causes like things to look small. Right. So like you could take a picture of like a city and it looks like a like toy city or something right. like that. Or like that and I, I photo see that. of like the person holding up the leaning tower of Pisa. <laughs> <laughs> No, not like that. Actually, uh, you've seen the but photo like... from like a different perspective, right? Where it's like they they have like intentionally misaligned it, and it's just like fifty tourists who are all like <laughs> like <laughs> doing the pose as if they're holding it up. Right. <laughs> Thank you for that distraction. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> but Speaking yeah, like, of things like... that are freaking tilted, that tower. Someone's got to do something. <laughs> Hey, freaking Tilted Tower sounds like my game of Fortnite. Uh, is that the name of a spot on the map? It's gotta be. I only know to- <laughs> Tomato Town. Well, we just wiped it out, right. certainly. Uh, but yeah, like like <laughs> scenes of her like in her car, I see a lot of like that tilt shift aesthetic where it's like it looks like a toy, and then like there'll be like in the wide shots, really. Like I'm looking at a scene right now. It's where she like goes to Hazel's house. And there's a shot of her, like, walking up the driveway, and she's, like, such a tiny little figure Mm -hmm. that, like, like, I think he leans more into, like, the aesthetic choices in that department. Yeah. Which I think is effective. And I also think, like, you know, there are parts where he experiments with different art styles, like, a lot of the establishing shots are in a sort of different art style than some of the other parts of the book, especially, like, the backgrounds and, like, the way he depicts, like, the weather and stuff. Now, he does have an art assistant on this one, again, like he did in Scott Pilgrim Volume 6, that I'm sure that one of the primary tasks that that person, Jason Fisher, I want to say is the name? Yes, Jason Fisher, the assistant, Dustin Harbin does the lettering, and then Nathan Fairbairn is back doing the colors. Right. So I, I am just like kind of based on how I know like the art assistants in manga work and how he used that art, the art assistants in the last volume of Scott Pilgrim, it wouldn't surprise me if one of the primary tasks that Jason Fisher was responsible for was doing a lot of the backgrounds. But I like that's that's not to say that like and therefore he's not doing anything differently because like it is uh, he he talks a lot in the interviews around when it's coming out about how he's like basically addicted to European comics like at, in this in this era. And I feel like you can really feel that a lot. It, it like it it kind of feels like, in the same way, like in the in the last volume of Scott Pilgrim, we talked a little bit about how with like the very realistic backgrounds, it sort of felt like um, these like manga characters being pasted onto more like rendered backgrounds. In some ways, this feels like it's just like little like chibi manga characters living in a like Tintin comic world <laughs> in in sure, some ways, yeah. especially because Seconds itself is a very old building. The other building that she's looking at for Katie's, her, her forthcoming new restaurant, is also a very old building. The city that they're in is very like historic looking so it all yes, lends it we, a very... we briefly we briefly discussed this before we started recording about what we think the oh, city yeah. is supposed to so be so i'm i'm pretty sure they're in montreal sure. because people are speaking french but she primarily speaks english and so do all the other characters but like but she is greeted in french like 
a number of times. And that just makes sense to me as far as like how old, when you get like that one shot of the city, looking at the like Lucknow Street location, uh, tucked under the bridge, it looks, I mean, to be honest, it looks like Quebec City uh, to to me, like the huge building behind it. I'm like Chateau Frontenac, but yeah, just like Quebec being the part of the country that is the oldest in a lot of ways it kind of has that sort of like gothic european feel in some parts of the city and that that also kind of lends itself to like we we were talking about as far as kind of being influenced by the european style like it's a lot easier to look like you're in a tintin comic when the setting is a place that like it was built by french people in the 1600s right yeah definitely the other aesthetic thing that I thought of, just as a quick aside, did you ever play Celeste? That's the one where it's like a spl- it's like with a, a platformer with like little wings, and doesn't uh, she have wings? No. <laughs> All right, never mind. No, it's like she's like it's a red-haired girl who is like traversing this mountain, and so there are a lot of like environments that are very snowy, and so whenever it was snowy in the book, it made me think of that, and just like. I think whole vibe of the book is sort of Celestian as well. Uh, not to invoke My Little Pony. I think that's what they are or something. Outside anyway, of My Wheelhouse, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Have it outside yeah, okay. of My Wheelhouse as well. But just the, the vibe of like, I don't even know that it's like, it's sort of that it feels like the world is like detached from like the rest of the world in some ways. Does that make sense? That they're sort of living in their own, like, insulated community. The fact that, like, 90% of the book takes place inside the restaurant certainly lends itself to that. And I think that's also probably part of, like, why why I'm thinking, like, there's a thriller, like, horror element to it. Is, like, it feels so claustrophobic sometimes, especially as the, like, pervasive evil force starts to grow under the floorboards. And it's, like, there's nowhere she's she's already spending so much time in this like extremely small building and then like more and more of it is being kind of taken over as um as time goes on now multiverses very hot right now like so true i thought you were talking about the upcoming video game multiverses oh that's the one with the warner bros like properties is that the thing Yes. Right. So do you do you want to talk about the playable characters of I have not seen this, but um can you be LeBron is mostly what I want to know. <laughs> oh, that is a tremendous idea, and they should add that. Um here's or at least so algae far, rhythm. I believe. Sure. Oh yeah, they can get algae rhythm in there. Some of the characters uh and I think there's meant to be adding more after the fact, but the current roster Finn the human. Okay. Jake the dog. Sure. <laughs> That's where we're starting. Batman. <laughs> Superman. Wonder Woman. Harley Quinn. Bugs Bunny. <laughs> I... Taz. <laughs> Shaggy. <laughs> oh, see, okay. This I did hear about because 
I was having a conversation because it has ultra instinct shaggy. Well, I was having a conversation with uh, the guys that I game with, um, and I but I assumed it was a joke. But one of them, was, like I, I guess I didn't realize that this was the real roster, because one of them was saying like, "Oh, they're making this game, so you can finally see Batman beat up Shaggy." And I was like, "I think you mean you can finally see Shaggy beat up Batman." I did not realize that they had already like announced the character lists and that Shaggy is on it. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Shaggy, Velma. Okay. I did see a clip where for Velma's crawl animation, not Scooby. That's uh, for Velma's crawl animation. Her, the screen becomes blurry because she can't find her glasses. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> From Steven Universe, Steven Universe and Garnet. Mm-hmm. Tom and Jerry. Okay. As, a, as like, an Ice Climbers-style combo I believe, as, combo I believe as an character. Ice Climbers-type scenario, yes. <sighs> There's an original character named Rhyndog. Why <laughs> would you do that? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and I saved the best for last. Arya Stark. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. That cannot be true. <laughs> and the Iron Giant. I was going to say, Iron Giant, like, I, I, I don't really get like I, I say this as someone who loves the iron giant i guess i'm just surprised that they keep being like and the iron giant is also in this like in he was in ready player one he was in uh space jam a new legacy like every time they've done these sort of like crossover like he look all the warner brothers properties like iron giant has a weirdly prominent role to play it's true i think he is just like even if people don't really care about the movie, and I think people do care about the movie certainly more than they did like when it was coming out. But I think it's like it the just like if you picture like the head of the Iron Giant, mm-hmm. it's a very like iconic face. Yeah. So to speak. And so I feel like that like imagery and also just like him being an, a big giant guy is like sort of lends itself to that. Isn't he too big to be a playable character though? It's a fair point. And there is a scene in the cinematic trailer where Superman is like, hey, it's me. Remember, you like being Superman? <laughs> uh-huh. And what does the Iron <laughs> Giant say to that? I believe he says Superman. <laughs> mm, I see. And do we think Vin returned to provide some voice lines? It definitely was not Vin. There are, like, almost all the characters are like, well, that's not your voice. <laughs> <laughs> It's not your famous iconic voice uh, that I know very well. That's too bad. Do we want to talk about the... Speaking of casts of characters, mm-hmm. do we want to talk about some of the characters that populate this? I mean, have, have we talked enough about Katie? Do we like her? I think she is very cute. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, we like her fine. I mean, she's she's... I don't know. I feel like people talk a lot about with like all of O'Malley's kind of protagonists that the whole thing is like they're unlikable but they are likable and it's like yeah but like also like I I just feel like people bring up like his flawed protagonists a lot and I'm like most protagonists are flawed in some respect or another Um, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I don't think that she is I guess like as well I don't know she seems like if I knew her in real life I would be scared of her and not 
be her friend. <laughs> sure. But she strikes me as less at like in contrast to Scott Pilgrim, who I would like be on his couch <laughs> every every day. But she strikes me as like less unlikable than Scott in a lot of ways, where like she she's just mostly kind of like mad and frustrated and lashing out because of it, as opposed to having like major moral failings other than in the universes where she's cheating on her husband. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I'd say she has her share of moral failings. I mean, like, I think, and again, like, I think as the book goes on, maybe one of the problems that sort of presents itself is, like, you get to the point where, like, I think she goes two or three steps uh, past the point where you'd be like, okay, I'm going to eat this mushroom and write down, I never ate the mushroom. Right. Because, because I feel like that is like, uh, you know, the pretty logical conclusion. It is like not to not to be like a total sociopath about it, but it is like, what do you lose by doing that? Hazel gets some burns on her arm. <laughs> like as soon as I saw the like evil alien goo like in my dream growing <laughs> in the basement, I would be like, I never ate the mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean like again, also not to sound like a sociopath, but like, shouldn't she be using these better? <laughs> oh. Yeah, I, I mean the rules. The rules are pretty vague. I am surprised that it took her as long as it did to figure out that it had to be something that happened like on on the second's premises. Not that like I don't know if my first instinct would be like no Holocaust, <laughs> um, <laughs> but but <laughs> but um, like it it does surprise me that she took that long for it to occur to her that it's like oh i can write about things that happened like before i was told about the mushrooms or like given the mushrooms or to try and change something that didn't happen like at seconds right but yeah i mean but then it's like by the time she gets like a lot of the mushrooms she's like it's like even if you don't even if you're like i'm gonna do this anyways you must realize that, like, the dire warning from a supernatural spirit is a dire well, warning yeah, of some sort. I, I am the sort of, like, rule boy that if the supernatural spirit that taught me about the mushrooms was like, no more, I'd be like, okay. <laughs> I mean, I would probably be like, okay, and then, like, keep them if I really needed them. Well, but then yeah. she's just, like, she's, like, popping them on the daily. Yeah, she... It's it's almost like especially the some of the early ones where it's like I shouldn't have done so much drunk. I where I'm like is she just like do it like did she get that drunk because she knew that she was going to be able to just like use the mushroom like part of me was like is she doing things because she wants to like see what will happen when she undoes them or at least because she knows that like she can do them consequence free. Right. Yeah, and I think that is a certain element of it. And now I'm like, well, what's the metaphor there? I guess just, like, the idea of, like, having power. Well, yeah, like it's, you start it's to... the, like, when you, when you take out the element of, like, accountability and responsibility, then people start to do irresponsible things. <laughs> sure, yeah. Other characters, Max. Let's talk about Max because I mean, like, we don't really see that much of him, no, and I think don't. that is probably like part of what I dislike about Max is that like 
we we mostly see the ways in which he like makes katie's life worse yeah well and, also, and like we're kind like, of like, well, like almost explicitly told like he kind of sucks <laughs> or or yeah, at least that, certainly like, she's not that happy with him right and it's and i mean a big part of the initial sort of phase is like she sort of has to balance between she's mostly happy that she's back with max also just to clarify something Mm -hmm. are we meant to understand that she that they broke up because she was cheating no so as or did that start after my understanding of it is that she in the original timeline she started hooking up with chef andrew after they broke up and that the reason they broke up initially was because he found out about the restaurant and like that she was like making the plans for katie's and was mad about it yeah well that's certainly like the stated more explicit thing yes i just wasn't sure if we were meant to also take that it's like the distance is sort of being formed by yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure yeah because obviously, like, there are other timelines where they're married and she still has her uh, her Andrew affair. So it's not like... But but she's surprised by that. So I think that I, she... Well, I think she's more surprised that, that it's still she's happening. married. Well, well yeah, yeah, but, like, it, when he, like, kisses her, she's like, I'm married. And he's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um But yeah, I think, you know, to go back to sort of the original point, like, there's stuff, I mean, one of the first things we see is sort of that he sort of, I think it's an interesting idea, and one maybe that, I don't know, I sort of get torn between, like, it should be less about Max, and then, like, it should be all about Max (laughs) in some ways, because I think, like, just that idea of, like, forming this relationship that never existed is like inherently pretty interesting but sort of like what it seemed where it seems to be going in a big way is like sort of that she is in some ways appreciative of his presence but then there are some very like concrete ways that she is burdened by him and just sort of like in something in a way that i thought was interesting like burdened by being a woman who is married to a man yeah well yeah i think that a lot of the like lesson that she is learning so to speak is to be like secure in her independence i guess and like yeah it's it's like one of those things that doesn't necessarily like come into focus super often but she's like pining for this relationship that she kind of has to realize that she is like better without, but then they get back together anyways, which does kind of confuse it. Well, I feel like what's most kind of confusing about it is that the narrator basically at one point is like, he's like not worth it. (laughs) Like she, he's, he's not worth giving up the things that she would have to like give up to be with him, at least in like the, the, universe where they're married yeah i mean like he's like he's visibly like he's not adding anything to the equation really like it's not like they have like an amazing relationship it's like he still kind of sucks but then also it's like she she doesn't 
I don't feel like we we get any of, or at least we don't see why it's worth it to her. And maybe it's fair enough that just like being in a relationship with the person you want to be in a relationship with is like worth a significant amount of sacrifice. But I feel like we don't get to like, we just never no, really see them happy. Like, it's a dream, but it has a dark. Yeah, exactly. It's like, there's a dream, but it has a dark underbelly. It's just like, yeah, you're with Max. Like, <laughs> yippee. <laughs> um, but obviously like still unhappy enough that you still have your fling with Andrew and like, you know, have to make all these compromises with regards to the restaurant, which is the thing that you like actually love as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel I feel like kind of what I think the the intended sort of like message or understanding that we're meant to have about her is that because of the experience that she has with the mushrooms and just like the event of the whole story, she she like recognizes that she has to grow in order for their relationship to be one that can work because she has to learn how to kind of like I guess fully know and appreciate herself or or know what things she thinks are kind of like worth fighting for and worth not compromising on for her and that like once she like she says like I would have brought you in eventually but I needed some time to like kind of figure out what I was doing on my own the implication is sort of like and then once she has figured out how to do it on her own then it's like sort of fine for him to come back except like I I just yeah I don't know I'm like well he's not just like <laughs> you know this this like solved person with who's who's just yeah, like kind of waiting is, like, to come and, and like only be adding to her life like he doesn't seem like he's this so amazing guy that it's like and then like once i'm happy and like independent and fulfilled in and of like myself and my own achievements then all that will be missing from my life is you like i feel like really the whole thrust of the story is like there's nothing missing from your life <laughs> Like, you have everything yeah. you need to be happy already. Yeah, and I, I maybe it's just that I feel like maybe he just struggles to create, like, uh, like unproblematic, like, unflawed character in that way. Like, he, I think he, you know, pretty much all of his characters have, like, significant character flaws in one way or another, like, not just his protagonist. And so maybe it's just difficult for him to create a character who could can be, like just like an all-encompassingly positive thing in that way i I just don't think that he like was trying to do that with max either though like there's so many things like kind of i i guess against him sort of throughout that i'm he he never seems to me like he was trying to make him like dream boy who you know is is kind of like the personification of her having made it yeah yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I certainly, I don't think so either, because that is, like, very much not borne out by who the character is. Like, he is almost like a Scott Pilgrim type, where he is, like, very, I mean, like, <laughs> I am always interested in the way that Brian Lee O'Malley writes men as opposed to the way he writes women, <laughs> because, like, I feel like the thing that he often, like, sticks to with men is, like, the, like, naive self-confidence angle Mm -hmm. and like the ways like because he's like i'm cooking three steaks at once like (laughs) i am a master of the kitchen and then she's like i'm literally a chef like i built this restaurant from the ground up with my bare hands and so like that like 
I feel like when I see that, it's just like such an immediate turn off <laughs> that I'm like, this guy sucks. And like, there's really no getting around it. But it's like, I mean, in that regard, that's like, he is a bit of a Scott Pilgrim. And so by extension, we're like, well, we need to see this guy like develop a little bit as well. Right. Yeah. I think that a lot of it is just sort of like, be careful what you wish for or, or like the life that you're imagining when, when you imagine the life that will make you happy, you're not imagining reality. You're imagining the life that would make you happy. And so when she imagines being with Max, she's not imagining being with the version of Max that's like, stand back, professional chef, while I cook three steaks simultaneously. She's just imagining the version who like has like like tuxedo mask eye sparkles around his face <laughs> and like like gives her smoldering looks. Yeah, but don't you think that it makes more sense if it's, like, you, if we see, like, the pros and the cons? Where, like, because I think what what sort of gets imparted at some points and what I think is maybe, like, and uh, which I think is a really interesting execution is, like, you have someone to take care of you and, like, you know, someone to, like, care for you and protect you in the way that, like, a partner might. But then, like, the trade-off of that is you don't have that independence. You aren't able to make your own decisions. Like, they're going to, like, steal some of your thunder to some extent. (laughs) And I feel like that is, like, the angle that we get at the beginning. And then it sort of gets muddied a little bit the more, like, we see of him and the more, like, annoying he becomes, basically. Mm -hmm. Yep. Do we want to talk about Hazel? Do we have anything to say about Hazel? She seems fun. Yeah, she seems chill. (laughs) So as she's as a, she's a bit of to, a like plot device. She is a bit of a plot device for sure. As I alluded to earlier in the book, I really thought or earlier in the episode rather, I really thought that where this was going was that it would end up with her and Hazel together. Am I am I just reading into am I seeing what I want to see here or um, is this a valid line of sight on my part? I mean, I'd already read the book, so I knew that that wasn't the way that it went. So I certainly didn't read it with um, with that angle. I mean, it is kind of like a, a they they definitely get sort of like a romantic setup in some ways, and they also get like a weird romantic conclusion. Like I'm like if you go to the very last scene, like I mean, we didn't really talk about this, but like the way it ends is sort of that. Liss like eats the mushroom Mm -hmm. she like gets the last mushroom back to this house spirit Liss who we do need to talk about as well but Liss like eats this mushroom and it activates the powers and everything goes back to normal and then she wakes up in the hospital where she basically has had like a (laughs) non-specific like exhaustion attack Mm -hmm. due to being overwhelmed with all of her stuff but and then like it gets like the big like reveal moment where it's like Hazel's here and she like came to visit you in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, everything's the same as it was before I made this change, except it's not because I have this relationship with Hazel. Right. And it's it's like, that's like romantic in a weird way. Like that. It's like, Oh, like this is like the special thing that came about because of this. Right. And then, and then they have a moment where it's like, here's how we became friends. Mm-hmm. And then there's this moment where t- she like puts her hand over her hand. <laughs> and then it's just like, and then I went back to seconds and Max was there. Mm-hmm. And part of me is, is like, you know, almost in the same way that we talked about the ending of the Scott Pilgrim movie where it's like, 
did you write it? Is there like a version of this in a drawer somewhere where they end up together? And then you just decided that you wanted her to end up with Max instead? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, like it is it is funny that like kind of one of the reveals is like actually like your friendship with hazel is like a universal constant (laughs) and like even in the version of reality where like you never do anything with the mushrooms you still become friends that does have like there's a certain star-crossed lovers like element to that so it is funny that two pages later it's like and then she like starts dating that like one guy in the kitchen (laughs) yeah and maybe that's the the eternal sunshine part that it made me think of where it's like you know regardless of like what universe and what events happen in the universe or like how i might try and change things like the constant is that i end up with you and i think that is like that's a very romantic notion to me and i guess like to some extent it's just like that's just not the story he wanted to tell Mm -hmm. and i guess that's fair but it is like it does feel like something gets left on the table to some extent, and then yeah, and then it's just like you're with Max, like why, <laughs> honey, please? <laughs> is there anyone else? I mean, like Arthur, he seems chill. Yep, Andrew, I guess, is kind of like the next major character. Yeah, again, like I think because it deals so much with her internality and also because you have different realities. So characters like motivations and like feelings sort of change towards her based on what's happened in the reality, then that sort of causes some causes the other characters to be left by the wayside a little bit. And it's mostly only Hazel who like has the consistency to, to find like some development other than Katie herself. Yep. Yeah, I feel like I had some things to say about like how this book came about, and now I don't remember them. Um, he did do for this book like a true and proper book tour. <laughs> Got profiled in Grantland. <laughs> Cheers. I thought you were gonna say he did a full a true and proper script because I was gonna bring this up that like it it almost reminded me of the sculptor. I was thinking that too. And I think it's it's also it's partly a vibe thing. Yeah. But then it's like this feels like a graphic novel in the sense that it is like he it feels like he wrote a novel and then he added illustrations in some ways. I think a lot of points of overlap that kind of make me think of the sculptor um, in terms of like it it is this this late 20s not coming of age story but still like there's like that kind of element of self-realization in there there is like just like kind of the the things that he was doing with the layouts are very very different from scott pilgrim he was doing some like very kind of like asymmetric and and like this probably is part of where some of like the claustrophobia comes from, but it's these like small pages, relatively speaking that he sometimes would cram like 11 or 12 panels onto. He, it feels to me like he's doing a lot more visual storytelling, which is funny because like there's this heavy narration and like interaction with the narrator, but there will be pages where it just goes silent and it's like, it's not action sequences. He's just showing her like, peering into like this creepy dresser drawer that felt yeah just just a little bit more 
uh, Scottish to me. I think there's like kind of the stylistic overlap of having like this obviously manga inspired style, but filtered through kind of like a Western comics lens where there's like elements of the the big two and elements of European comics as well that enter in. And even just like aesthetically, like the, the front cover of my book, when you take the dust jacket off, has this like close up shot of Max that almost looks like it like could have been drawn by Scott. Right. I kind of see what you mean, yeah, especially the eyes. Yeah, in in like a way that is like even just aesthetically it kind of is approaching and then there's also the element of like it feels it feels like the return in some ways yeah where like the sculptor was scott's first fiction work after zot i mean no, like, not zot because he did like others. he did a couple of things in between but it was his first fiction work in like 15 years yeah. almost or close to and and was kind of like his big return to like storytelling after making a bunch of books about storytelling and then in the same way O'Malley took like four years between Scott Pilgrim volume six and when seconds comes out which was like the longest break he'd taken kind of in his professional career up to that point and because it's like the book after the book it has that same sort of feel of like it's the return and like doing something different and then I also and I also think that sort of they both center around similar themes of like a creative person sort of like trying to self-actualize in some ways yeah they they're both just like very earnest kind of like ruminations on like the nature of being creative and also like like the human condition (laughs) yeah i mean like that's the thing is like i sort of talked about how like this certainly feels more of a piece with Lost at Sea than it does with Scott Pilgrim in a lot of ways, although I think it does share a lot of DNA with Scott Pilgrim as well, in terms of, like, not only being about a female protagonist, but sort of just being about, like, like a, like you said, like, a rumination on, like, what it means to be alive and, like, sort of, like, finding meaning in things and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, I think it's very very important that we discuss this now fast eddies is in this comic book (laughs) i for some reason it did not clock for me that that would like possibly be the same place but it must be (laughs) like the logo looks the same i'm going so for those who aren't familiar who don't live uh didn't grow up in london ontario there is a hamburger (laughs) restaurant if you Google Fast Eddie's, fasteddies.ca is the first thing that comes up, and the like blurb under the link is Ed's menu. If you've tasted them, you know what we mean. <laughs> Which I feel like is not. Let's just say the depiction of Fast Eddie's in this book, which is that she eats a double burger and then like spews fluid out both ends, is true to life. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at a thing right now, and the only Fast Eddie's I see are in like the London, Ontario area, and like St. Thomas, which is like immediately adjacent to London. So I'm pretty sure this is like the Fast Eddie's, more or less. Well, so now this really pokes a hole in my they are in uh well, I mean in Montreal theory. 
they're not really in, I don't think. I think, you know, obviously they're not in any specific location by design. And maybe we should talk about that as well, that, like, we're going from, you know, the hyper-specificity of Scott Pilgrim to a much more, like, you know, even if he is sort of trying to evoke a place at some point, like, he sort of, he does, I think, put a lot of effort into making seconds and to a lesser extent, the other locations, like making them sort of like fully formed in a way that like he mostly didn't have to in Scott Pilgrim. There's so much of the Fast Eddie's website is just like, how can you become a franchisee? <laughs> <laughs> Which feels uh, surprising to me. Yeah, I wouldn't think they were really so, looking to expand. It's definitely, though, you're right. It's definitely like a Southern Ontario thing. I'm seeing locations in Brantford, Simcoe, London, Thorn. No, no, two in London. Uh, and then like Cambridge, Kitchener, Waterloo area. So that is like all you could you could like drive from any one location of Fast Eddie's to another in like 45 <laughs> minutes right. max. Right. And yeah, which have, is crazy. <laughs> they have some crazy fries. They have crazy fries as well. Maybe, uh, maybe this is set in Simcoe. I just am surprised, based on that, that like she has, I think, a couple of different customers like come in and speak to her in French, and she replies in French. Yeah, I mean, like I, I certainly get what you're going for with the Montreal thing. I think that that is correct in a lot of ways. But I think he's also, like I said, like, I don't think he's trying to evoke a very specific place. Like, I think he's trying, he's just drawing influences in the same way that he drew influences from Toronto and Scott Pilgrim. But instead of right. trying to make it all fit into something, like, I'm, I'm sure it was like a relief in some ways for him to not have to, like, be bound to the geography of Toronto in some respects, like... Yeah. And, and like, I mean, I guess as much as like the, the sort of old school, like Gothic European kind of vibe to what we see of the places like could be old Montreal, it also could be like Stratford <laughs> or like, yeah. you know, there's, there's plenty of kind of like rural ish, uh, towns in Ontario where it, you know, it might not have be as old as like some of the stuff that's in Montreal, but that sort of like rustic old school, like built in the 1800s vibe for sure can be found like all over the place. Well, I mean, it's probably worth mentioning that there is like a Lucknow, Ontario, which is like in like the Goderich, Kincardine kind of area, which like mm -hmm. is sort of like not cottage country exactly, but sort of like quaint lakeside town is sort of like the vibe that that area is seeking to evoke, I think, a lot of the time. And so I think there is like some element of that coming in as well. Yes, certainly. Anyway, so I was saying he went on like a national book tour for this. He got profiled uh, for Grantland by Emily Yoshida. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> Huge crossover event and the like photo that they used seemingly for like all of the publicity because i've seen this picture so many times frankly he's looking like a snack yo wow yeah i mean like this is like he got a headshot taken like i mean he's uh he's been in la for the past four years uh when this book comes out sure. so maybe that's that's just that uh that's so green living. living you know <laughs> yeah sure i mean i would agree that he's looking like a snack 
And speaking of snacks, there's a lot of food in this freaking uh, book. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, we haven't even talked about, like, you know, obviously his restaurant experience, which <laughs> I feel like he didn't even work in a restaurant for that long. <laughs> Question mark. But like he he talks at points about how like Katie is kind of inspired by the owner of the restaurant that he worked at. The layout of seconds is very much based on kind of like every hip restaurant in Toronto where like you have to go down a rickety set of stairs into the basement to find the bathroom. And like that's where the kitchen is and all that stuff like it's very and and that like within the first week of him like working at the restaurant he was like one day i will make a comic about (laughs) working at a restaurant yeah i mean and we see it in the last book of scott pilgrim as well that that becomes like certainly an element of it as well um what else what else what else i mean the there's like a uh, bread makes you fat callback yes there is yeah it's funny that that's like the joke I guess after the vegan police is maybe the first thing I think of, but um, but that seems to be the other joke that people are like, aha, a Scott Pilgrim reference. I do feel like that is the one that like has made it into the mainstream, even more than the vegan police, that bread makes you fat. Right. Well, vegan police is a very... Like, it's, a, it's more of a bit than a joke. Yeah, it's it's pretty extended and like to to reference it is a little bit more involved. <laughs> right, sure, sure, sure. But yeah, I mean it's just it's just, the the book as a whole like all of the publicity around it it very much feels like he is just like in a very different place from where he was when he was making Scott Pilgrim and it's very tangible and I'm sure part of that is just like getting a little bit older i think he's like 35 when this comes out and works started working on it when he was freshly 30 which is of course kind of an underlying uh not not even a motif per se it's something that comes up a couple times that katie has um you know a a little bit of uh larcenistic dread of uh, the big three (laughs) oh sorry what Uh, you know tick tick boom Oh, Andrew Larson. Be 30. Yeah. My first thought was when you said larcenistic that I was like, oh, she's stealing. And then. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you and then I was like, no, it's larcenistic. That's a person. Well, of course, you're talking about Gary Larson, creator of the far side. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's it's it. I guess maybe this is also part of what like causes us to both think of the sculptor is just that it feels very much like he's sort of like free of any expectations other than his own in some ways, and like he just he just like feels a lot more settled, and so the work itself feels kind of more like self assured and also like less. Not that Scott Pilgrim is like, I need to like impress people or like win people over or anything like that. But there is just like, it just is a little more sort of like self-assured in terms of like, he's doing things that he thinks are fun or that he thinks are interesting or that he thinks are challenging and is like not necessarily concerned with, like, I I don't want to say that he's not concerned with the story. Like, obviously the story is good. (laughs) I think we both agree. Um, 
and and we've talked previously about how like kind of writing is the thing that he in some ways feels comes more naturally than the art side of things so not to say that he's like neglecting the the story or not trying to make a good story or anything like that but it just feels like he no longer maybe like wonders if he is able to make a good story and so that lets him sort of like push himself in different ways or just like kind of chill and do only the things that he is like most interested in doing yeah it's interesting because like i was sort of skimming that profile that you linked the grantland one and like there are some things that get brought up that's like oh well like there isn't that much like music in this and like there's not really that much pop culture in general and i guess like that never really occurs to me because i as much as i think of that as like so emblematic of scott pilgrim obviously I think especially starting with Lost at Sea as the basis, I never felt like that was, like, his style in the same way that it might be for even, like, a Quentin Tarantino or something like that. And I think this is one of... We brought the Quentin Tarantino up yet again. Would you like to do your impression? I have an impression of Quentin Tarantino. Am I imagining this? Didn't we talk about him on another episode and you were like, yeah, we talked. He, he sort of has, like, a Jay Leto voice. <laughs> He does kind of, I think we both did brief Quentin Tarantino impressions, <laughs> but we ta- we talked about him on the last episode because he like really loved the Scott Pilgrim movie slash Edgar Wright, like asked him how to pull off some of the action sequences. And then we were talking right. about his like top movies of the year lists. <laughs> right. Yes. And he was like, he's something chunky express. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen this? Have you heard about this? Have you heard about this Wong Kar Wai? <laughs> Uh, (laughs) (laughs) oh this is going off the rails yes but but it's it is funny like so he took he takes four years to put this book together and to put it out and it seems like he was pretty much working on it the whole time like he didn't have other stuff on the go and yet I, I, I like read something where he talked about basically he was like, this is like a much bigger undertaking than a Scott Pilgrim, which is true. But also just like in terms of like the size of the book, I believe I described it to you as a one and a half pilgies, uh, <laughs> yes. i.e. like it's it's roughly 1.5 times as long as like any one volume of Scott Pilgrim, which he was churning out like one a year. And so, and it, but but maybe that's part of why it's coming out feeling more self-assured and more polished is that he's not working at this kind of like, you know, unproven, my books don't make any money yet kind of um, breakneck pace where he's like trying to just like get his work out there. He has a bit more time. He can afford to hire assistants. He can afford to do the book in color from the get-go and he can afford to kind of take his time with it. Um because other than this, all he really did, like, it seems like he kind of was like, I'm going to be, like, done with comics for a little bit, both kind of, like, before and after this, where it was, like, all he was really doing was, like, kind of, like, things like that X-Men promo image that we talked about um, that he did for Scott Pilgrim, where he was doing, like, guest covers for right. other people's books or, like, things things like that or he did like the cover art for a video game things like that yeah where for it was like, i feel like he just needed a bit of like a reset and he's coming back and and yeah it just it does feel like he is sort of like rested and rejuvenated in this yeah and i mean like 
it's interesting. I mean, like, it's it's not like his other books don't feel, like, self-assured, though, don't you think? Like, I think what's impressive about Scott Pilgrim in some ways is that it can juggle so many things at once, but then, like, still come across feeling very, like, complete and, like, a well-rounded work in that way. But it is interesting for sure. I mean, maybe we'll talk about it more, like, next episode, but, like, he hasn't made that much stuff in the last like 10 years <laughs> no and uh, yeah it's very i'm kind of curious what all I'm, I'm going to be digging into this a little bit but what all he has been sort of doing because we will be talking about snot girl next which started in 2016 i want to say like not it was a couple of years after and he only writes that correct and he only writes that and there have only been 15 issues of it. And the last issue came out in 2020. I can't think of anything that would have happened. And when I say last happened. issue, I don't mean the finale. I mean right, the, most the most recent, recent issue. Yeah. yeah. It's very it sporadically had, released from what I'm seeing yeah. here. It came out monthly for three months. <laughs> and then kind of tried again after missing one month. And then since then, three issues in 2017 four issues in 2018, two issues in 2019, one issue in 2020. Um, yeah, Leslie I'm... Hung, his collaborator, has said that it's going to be coming back in 2022 at some point. And, and he announced another project called Worst World, which he has right. since said that was premature because it, nothing further has materialized with regards to that and it has no release date. Well, that is very confusing to me. I can't understand why he hasn't done more, given that Snot Girl number 15 was released on March 11th, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't think of anything significant that has happened in that time. Yeah, but but I mean, yeah, obviously something there was something that happened around that time that uh, who can remember, but um, but it had already kind of slowed to a crawl. And as much as like things were disrupted across the industry at that point, like comics still were coming out and like people were still creating during during the past two years. You know what I mean? Um, so I am curious if there have been kind of other things that have taken up some of his time and attention. He does seem also like I, I was thinking about this a little bit and I'm sort of torn where I'm like, does he seem like the kind of guy who Rip -torn. would just sort of like stop making comics and sort of like lose interest in the medium? Or does he seem like the kind of guy who would never stop making comics? Because like we've talked a little bit about how it seems like making comics for him is such a natural form of self-expression that part of me is like, well, he's he'll never like stop making comics. Like even even if he like never released something commercially again, I feel like he's just the kind of guy who will always sort of like draw his feelings and like draw to tell stories. But also he does seem like the kind of guy with such a broad and diverse base of interests that once his name was like very much established through his comics work, like he's not just going to say no to the other opportunities that that brings along. Yeah, but I don't know, maybe it's, you know, silly on my part but like more than say satrapy he's always seemed like someone who is like m primarily interested in being like an artist and yeah. working in comics as a medium because i mean like 
he's still working in comics even like just as a writer so it's mm-hmm. like well and he's drawing worst world in right. theory in theory yes <laughs> and so it's like i wouldn't would i be surprised if he announced that he had written a novel certainly not would i be surprised if he announced that he was directing a movie certainly not but like he does feel like and, and even just like in terms of his style and sense of humor it's it feels like like i think that you can't really i mean they're gonna try but it's hard to tell this story <laughs> or at least this version of this story as anything other than a comic because of like the way that the narration plays into it and that sort of like meta textuality of it, I think like comics can be very good for. And I think that is clearly, you know, I haven't read Snocker, but like, I think that is definitely something he becomes more interested in over time. Like Scott Pogrom, I think becomes a little more meta textual over time. And this is so clearly meta textual that I, I do feel like that is something that like he has interest in, but then it's like, he could make like an everything everywhere all at once type movie. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it, it's just something where you know, like we we have discussed how he sort of feels like the fanboy made good and I'm just like it just seems like he loves comics too much to just like stop making comics. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, he hasn't stopped making comics really. I mean, only in so far as he has stopped making anything. <laughs> so just not that he's stopped, but just that some, you know, nothing has come out recently. But yeah, I mean, like, like you said, I think we've already talked about sort of him as the quote unquote fanboy. And I think it's more just him having a like rich and diverse set of interests that have to deal with like pop culture artifacts. Although mm-hmm. like he never does he talk about movies that much? That's like a weird like blind spot for him like the the like television and film seem to be yeah. like his bottom rung i have not seen him ever really talk about <laughs> that stuff now that you mention it yeah I, I not really so who knows but but yeah hey, i don't know hey, maybe Brian, why do you watch reservoir dogs <laughs> <laughs> he's recommending his own movie uh got that <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder if like the getting the kind of like behind the scenes look That's on fair. Scott Pilgrim made him kind of be like I'm just not really interested in doing most of that stuff like I'll, I'm happy to write the source material and like give input on the script and like if you want my ideas about the casting and all that that's fine but like the actual directing you know, I think I think that a lot of people don't necessarily have like a great, se- including me, that <laughs> have a great sense of like what all directing actually oh. entails and how much of it is like not creative in some ways or or at least like extremely technical. And I feel like if I was like on a movie set and saw what a director actually had to do, I would be like editing seems like it really speaks to me or like I could be a casting agent or like a writer. Like I would never be like, ah, yes, directing is like what I want to have to do. (laughs) I really cannot conceive of the person who's like, I want to direct a feature film because it seems like the hardest possible thing to do. But I know what you mean. I think he, I think like we've talked about, he is a writer first and foremost. And then it's just a matter of like, how does that like, it's like thought to page and then it's like I have these pages how does that get expressed and I think I think to someone like that it almost seems like it's like 
why would he write a novel? Because he can just write a novel and then make a graphic novel, which is like a better, like, you know, like from that perspective. Certainly like how he seems to prefer to like, yeah, share his ideas and express himself. Yeah, but it's like that feels like a strictly better form of expression when it's like, well, I wrote this script and now I get to like add more things to the script to make it like a more complete work. And so for that reason, I think that that maybe is why like comics appeal. And I think, I think if you have like a singular voice and a singular vision, it's better to be working in comics than it is to be directing a movie. Cause it's kind of hard to get across a singular vision in the way you want it to, if you're making a movie, but that's beside the point. But yeah, so they are, they're going to apparently make <laughs> a movie out of this. I don't know. It's, it's like I said, I have a hard time imagining a world in which that movie ever actually comes out, but it's like kind of in that weird zone where it's like you read the breakdown of it and it's like Edgar Wright is co-writing yeah. the script for Blake Lively to direct. And I am simultaneously both like, well, it's got to come out with those names and like, and of course, like, this will never see the light of day. <laughs> I think the names is, like, are the biggest reason to think that it will come out, especially because it's, like, Edgar Wright is co-producing with Mark Platt. They are, like, re-teaming. Mm. That, does, that does feel like it lends some credence for sure. But I don't know. I, I, like, oh, people's man. names get attached to, to things all the time. And I feel like most of the time when you're like, what an insane combination of names, i.e. Blake Lively and Brian Lee O'Malley's seconds. Those are the <laughs> things that like often end up not happening. I mean, I will also say this respectfully. Edgar Wright's seconds that he wrote the script for does not sound as good as like brian leo valley's writing the script i mean i feel like that'd be true of anyone but like particularly i feel like edgar wright is like a weirdly bad fit for this material like i think his more recent work has like shown me that like his deficiencies kind of line up with like where i would want this movie to like be playing in yeah i can see that uh would you like to hear some of the movies that and Mark Platt has on tap because it's a crazy list. I would like to hear this, yes. Well, this year he has already produced Better Nate Than Ever, a movie I just watched. Okay, and give me, give me the start the clock five second version of this. It's a little gay boy, but they never say he's gay and he wants to be Is on this Broadway. For and he auditions for Stitch. It's live action. Okay. Stitch in the Lilo and Stitch musical that doesn't actually Wait. exist. <laughs> okay. Lisa Kudrow plays his aunt. <laughs> Completely deranged. Got it. It's pretty deranged. Um, it's like a musical. It's just like about this little boy that loves Broadway, basically. He's not like a little boy. Okay. He's like 13 or whatever. Um, right. He's producing Babylon, the upcoming Damien Chazelle film. You know about this, right? <laughs> I do know about this, yes. Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie... Toby yeah. McGuire is Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> <laughs> and it's about like making the movie it's about, Babylon. Like, it's about old Hollywood, yeah. Right. Max Minghella as Irving Thalberg, really crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um and then next year he has the Little Mermaid live action remake. At some awards ceremony at some point, he's gonna like Damien Chazelle is gonna get the Adina Menzel treatment, <laughs> right? Like the Adele Dazim. <laughs> David He's just got one of those names where I feel like if you read it too fast, 
it makes no sense. <laughs> Hazel to me. David, it's uh, utterly insane that you should say that. Because in 2024, Mark Platt will be producing Wicked Part 1. <laughs> and of course, in 2025, he'll be producing Wicked, Wicked Part, Part 2. One? They are splitting it into two movies. I don't it's like insane. That. I see also that the forthcoming Mission Impossible movie is a Part 1. Yes, but I think that's more like they're like closing at the series and it's like a two-part right. type beat. Dead Reckoning. Great subtitle. Um, and then here are all of his TBAs. A lot of them seem to be biopics for some reason. Well, that's me as uh, Elvis from the Elvis sure. trailer. You're also doing a little bit of the Big Show's theme. Um, like he has one about <laughs> Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes. He has one about some Polish woman who was in Warsaw during World War II. Um, and then some stuff like Legally Blonde 3, Little Shop of Horrors, Oliver Twist, something called Quartermaster, uh, which is, I guess, on Netflix. Small Great Things. He's Q co- spinoff film? He's co-producing the, uh, not Rachel Dolezal. What's her name? <laughs> From a side oh. story. <laughs> What's her name? <laughs> Why can't I think of her name? Rachel Zegler. <laughs> So yeah, she's going to be Snow White. There's a Wizard of Oz remake. He's attached to Wanted 2. He's attached to the Magic School Bus. We should do Mark Miller at some point. Have we already talked about that? (laughs) I believe that it's in our... uh... So, seconds. Yeah. And, And this kind of aligning with, again, like the sculptor connection comes out to like some acclaim like it's well received and people are like hey like the scott pilgrim guy is back uh with a brand new invention and it's called seconds and like it's good and everyone's like yeah cool like pretty good and then just like come awards season crickets like no nominations no it does get nominations i thought i did not find any nominations for it maybe is it what, when does Snot Girl start? Because I'm seeing here 2015 Harvey Award nomination for Best Original Graphic Album, 2015 Ooh. Eisner nomination for Best Graphic Album New, 2015 Joe Schuster Award winner for Outstanding well, Canadian Comic Book Cartoonist. Pie in my face. I guess I should have uh, dug a little deeper here. These are nominations or? Uh... Nominations, yes. At the 2015 Harveys and Eisners. All right. Well, pie in my face. It does get some awards recognition here. But I know like. what you mean. That it. It. I think by. I think automatically any kind of like reception is going to feel like a bit of a whimper. Yeah. It. It would have been absolutely flooring to me. Like I was shocked when I was like, it seems to have been nominated for a uh, nothing. You're right. Like that would have been crazy to me. Yeah, and you know. It's I it's like I remember hearing about this, even though I wasn't plugged into like comics journalism. Like it was something that was just like in the ether because it was Brian Lee O'Malley. But then it's like nothing ever comes of that. Um this one summer great comic, uh the winner, of course, for best graphic album new at the Eisners. Sales wise, uh Sales. it <laughs> He being a, a pirate? I'm being AWOL Nation, of course. Oh, great. Of course. <laughs> you could forget. 
Anyways, sales-wise, end of the year, 56th for total units, 31st for $4, because it was uh, a $25 book, so, you know, topping off the sales numbers that year at number one in units and dollars, Saka Volume 3, number two, Saka Volume 2, or sorry, Volume 1, number four, Saka Volume 2, number 10, Saka Volume 4. Anyways, Saga, very popular, of course, as we've discussed uh, at some length. At 56th in the unit sales, Seconds is slotting in uh, just behind Teen Titans Earth 1 hardcover volume 1 by Jeff Lemire a bad comic <laughs> okay. uh, and just ahead of Hawkeye volume 3 LA Woman by Matt Fraction and Annie Wu a good comic from a dollar's perspective let's rearrange this chart thanks again as always to Comicron for this high value data it is slotting in just behind deadpool by daniel way complete collection volume one a bad comic i'm smoking that comic cron buddy (laughs) we've done so many comic cron bits already (laughs) and sex criminals volume one by matt fraction and chip zadarsky a fine comic it's whatever controversial um Eh, maybe i don't i don't know if it's that controversial maybe not uh just this is a weird out of order thing since we seem to be coming to the end here but i would (laughs) like to talk about uh the existence in this book of like the concept of a nega person and how he sort of revisits this concept i i did think about this while i was reading it as well and also this is something that is in celeste as well her name is Badaline. (laughs) Isn't that the publisher who released uh, yeah, Battleline Books? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I, it certainly is a theme that he returns to. I mean, I think that just like coming to terms with yourself and having things about yourself that you aren't a big fan of and uh, at times perhaps even flirting with self-loathing are all parts of O'Malley's experience if his work is anything to go off of. So, yeah, I mean, the nega self is, like, I think probably better used in Scott Pilgrim where it is a bit more, It's just surprising to me that he chooses to revisit it in such an explicit way. It also, like, it just doesn't really make sense to me in terms of, like, the whole like, the world of the book. Like, why is the spirit of the other place her? I think it makes sense from maybe not in the fiction of the book. You're right. But I think in terms of like the idea that it's like there wasn't anything like getting in your way. It was just you to some extent, I think is like a part of the book. But I know what you mean. The Like it doesn't quite try. I mean, like, are we meant to think that like, oh, there it's not a house spirit. It's just a reflection of her. Like, you know, you could you could say that it's like oh it's her negative emotion that has been like stored up in this building in the rest in the new restaurant that is not working out so it's like all of her negativity and anxiety about that sort of manifesting itself like i think you know you can sort of come up with an in-universe explanation of it that pretty much makes sense yeah yeah i again i didn't think it was as strong as how he goes with it um in scott pilgrim I would agree with that. But, you know, like I said, like, it's just strange to me, like, 
to use that metaphor so explicitly again is interesting to me that he makes that Mm -hmm. choice uh but yeah that's seconds i mean a good book that i think we both like yeah i mean i think there's a lot there's a lot going on like to some extent i i wish it would pick a lane i guess is my main uh if i had a criticism of it per se Mm -hmm. like it's funny it's funny that he opens the book with a quote from tusk like uh the fleetwood mac album which followed rumors (laughs) that's a good point (laughs) because it feels very tusky to me (laughs) in terms of like have, have you encountered this at all i feel like it's a big kind of like it's sort of like one of those like dog whistle is not quite right because it's not <laughs> racially charged, but it's like one of those sort of like ways that you signal that you're like a certain type of music fan is to right. have the take that Tusk is actually better than rumors. Right. Or like to be like the neon Bible person. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, like, but I but actually Tusk... like, or even like the Pinkerton person to some extent. Uh, I don't know if Pinkerton's that's different because true fans get it, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's the same idea, Pinkerton, right? Pinkerton also has a very complicated legacy at this point, uh, but yeah, yeah, it it is the same idea where it's the sort of contrarian, like actually the extremely popular album that people are like that's perfect is not as good as this like extremely uneven follow up, <laughs> right? Um, and and that is what like Tusk is in a lot of ways, and I think that that kind of matches with with how seconds comes across where he's following up his like you know his landmark album with this this other work which is so different and has so many of like the same things that make the other thing great but is different in ways that are sometimes kind of unpredictable and maybe not always like easy to understand and maybe not always as focused and it does feel like to me it feels like he just feels a little bit more like yeah maybe self-assured is not the right word but just sort of like free to to kind of like do what he wants to do with it yes i certainly feel that and and so it's like not really surprising in that uh that way that it does feel like you would like it to pick away or a lane in some ways because it is it is I almost Please. feel like <laughs> I almost feel like in some ways I'm like try and be a little less like Scott Pilgrim in the sense that I'm like try don't give me stuff about like the ensemble characters don't be about a relationship and another thing and a magic thing mm-hmm. that I think that is like I think it just tries to do like it tries to fit in so many ideas into a relatively small like scale that I think that is maybe like what I find a little frustrating about it at times is like, I feel like any one of these ideas, like, like I was saying, like, I think the idea of like the relationship with Max that was like unrealized and is now like you have it, that can be like a whole story unto itself. And instead it ends up feeling like a part, like, instead of having it feel like it, they all fit into a seamless whole, which is kind of what I feel like with Scott Pilgrim, it can sometimes feel like an unexplored path, which right. maybe fits into uh, what the book's all about. Whoa. 
now I feel like I'm freaking tripping balls. Um, yeah, why don't you go watch Pulp Fiction while you're at it? That's a lot of different narratives. <laughs> you know who else trips balls? My uh, leading man Cliff Booth from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He smashes a girl's face in on a mantle while he's high. I thought you were going to say Maya He. Do you know her? Maya who? Maya Hawk. Maya Hawk? <laughs> Maya Hawk Hawk? <laughs> Um, one thing that I think is very, like, in, I may very interesting is maybe not the right way to put it, but one thing that I have seen him say a lot in the press that he did for seconds is people being like, like people often bring up to him the whole, like, you know, sort of thematic thing that we talked about as far as like, ah, you've got a protagonist here who's like kind of trying to get out from under the shadow of like her last big success, a brian um and he kind of is like yeah like that is in there but then also will frequently basically be like i don't really mind being like the scott pilgrim guy like there's <laughs> there's like worse things in life if i never make anything that is like as popular or beloved as scott pilgrim again like there's worse things in life than being the guy who made of an extremely popular <laughs> and successful thing um and so I, I feel like you can feel that in this a little bit as well that I guess I guess it's that like yeah he never again, feels hostile towards Scott Pilgrim in any way and and he never feels like he needs to like outdo it or like it needs to be as like beloved and embraced as Scott Pilgrim in the same way that I don't think that when Scott made the sculptor he was like this needs to be as big a deal in the comics world as understanding comics right like they're both they both just have the kind of temperament where it's like if that's my legacy like there's worse legacies <laughs> yeah i think that is the self-assurance that you're talking about it's just like yeah he's not in no way is he trying to like make a hit or make something that will appeal to fans of scott pilgrim like he's clearly yeah. making the thing he, that he's he just wants very to make free yeah he's very free of um maya like free. any <laughs> maya frafra um any pressure that might like like, if I was making the follow-up to Scott Pilgrim, I would feel a lot of pressure on myself for yeah, like, if I it was to making, be as good as If Scott I was making Pilgrim. the follow-up to Scott Pilgrim, it would be called Scott Pilgrim 2. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, I would feel an enormous amount of pressure on myself and would feel like a huge failure if it wasn't uh, better than <laughs> sure. my, like, and more huge big deal thing. Yeah, exactly. Or, or like, if it was the kind of thing... That that would I guess like that would be my like how I left comics story would be like <laughs> I made this thing it was a huge hit I made another thing and it was like well reviewed at the time and then sort of forgotten until Blake Lively made a movie of it eight years later but by then I would have been like well like it seemed like no one was really interested in what I wanted to do like after that so I decided to just like do other stuff or like. I was paralyzed and never made a follow-up because like, yeah, it was too yeah. much pressure. <laughs> that would that would be the other thing. Like I would be I would just be cashing my checks from my movie script that I sold for the rest of my <laughs> life and like auditing university courses. <laughs> hey uh, Brian, why did you write my new Star Trek movie? <laughs> Brian, have you thought about writing a novel about your uh, <laughs> yeah, very successful sure. property? <laughs> Remember when I did that for my movie? <laughs> hey, Brian, you ever thought about Brian, breaking like an expensive guitar? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all 
right. Thank you all we for are. listening. Well done. <laughs> well done, good and faithful servants of the comic books. That's uh-huh. us. Uh <laughs> This has been this episode. Next week, I have to imagine we'll be covering Snot Girl, right? We will, but please give us those two stars because we surely have earned them today. <laughs> sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, which will, I believe, be the conclusion, I imagine, of our uh, Brian, uh, Brian Lee O'Malley miniseries. Yeah, unless, uh, unless you know, Worst, Worst World comes out. <laughs> comes out. <laughs> That'd be crazy. Unless he does a stealth drop. Sure. So look forward to that. And then I suppose we will be announcing our next mini series and things of that nature. So that'll be exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at got the runs pod. You can email us at got the runs pod at gmail.com. You can follow me at C house and Jan on Twitter. David pretty much just uses the got the runs Twitter to post things. And you can he finds follow me down the street. <laughs> invitation um, um yeah i pretty much just use i i was uh gang pressed into operating the got to runs twitter and so i primarily use it to you seem to have fun uh, i mean i share <laughs> the episode stuff for sure and then i feel bad if a week goes by and i haven't shared anything other than the episode stuff so sometimes i will uh share some further reflections on something that you we might a, have talked about a fantastic series of tweets talking about asian representation in comics which i yeah, really it was a more of a mixed race representation yes yes, yes uh, i should say mixed race representation um which was a very enjoyable read and everyone should definitely check out if you're not already following us there so do that uh you can listen to my other podcasts high floor low ceiling and bevy of bevies uh just earlier today my head all the time if that happened sure uh if i had a high floor and a low ceiling yep because i'm Uh, pretty tall yep you done (laughs) (laughs) Eh, i guess (laughs) uh <laughs> have you seen this have you bumped your head on this that's that's nothing uh we just wrapped up <laughs> season all one nothing. of bevy of bevy's the recording process today so be looking forward to those um well i, I guess i'll make it on season two then huh that, uh, i can't talk about us having guests on <laughs> bevy of bevy's it's a whole issue because we have the 20 minute time limit uh at any rate that will do it for us for this week but until next time as always to to be be continued 30 to 40 minutes sorry just ordering my dinner